Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. We are joined by a very great guest here today. Um, for people who aren't familiar, maybe you're just kicking around NFT Twitter with our Zoo Animal JPEGs, and you maybe aren't familiar with Rao Paul. He's a global macroeconomic strategist and financial thought leader. Uh, he's a former hedge fund manager, the co-founder and CEO of Real Vision. Uh, his experience includes Goldman Sachs uh, and is one of the few people who saw the financial crisis coming in 2008. So very noteworthy uh, accomplishment there as far as a lot of people did not see it coming. Uh, in the last decade, he's become increasingly vocal about the opportunities in crypto, particularly Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, has talked quite a bit about NFTs. Um, that are and that these opportunities could present to the global market. So, uh, Ralph, first, I want to say, GM, and thanks for coming up bright and early with us. How are you doing uh, on this fine Wednesday? GM, I'm happy to be here. It's a bit of a rainy day here in the Cayman Islands, which is rare, but it's a hot, humid swamp at this time of year, but it's all good. Yeah, I, I'm, in, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, the Cayman Islands of the Midwest, as many may say. So I've got a little bit of a rainy, rainy day myself. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I want to start off, Ralph, for people who maybe aren't familiar with you, because um, I gave like, a quick overview background. Um, I'd love to hear your background or your story as you tell it in your words, because I think you have such a fascinating sort of transition from successful in TradFi to this shift to being such a crypto believer. I'm curious how that happened and any of your background I missed in my very quick intro. Yeah, so my background, as you said, essentially 30 years of financial markets, uh, Goldman Sachs running hedge funds. And it was back in 2005, I decided to kind of opt out of the rat race, semi-retire, move to Spain and start writing macroeconomic research called Global Macro Investor for the world's biggest hedge funds, family offices, high net worth individuals, pension funds, that kind of stuff. And over that period, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to forecast the financial crisis and then the European debt crisis in 2012. But a lot of you in the US didn't see how big the 2012 crisis was in Europe. I was in Spain and I had to, I had to buy a generator and dried food because we thought we were going to lose the banking system over the weekend. Um, and eventually the um, ECB forced Spain to take a, uh, a loan for the banking system, a bailout of the banking system, which they didn't want to do. Cyprus had lost its banking system and everybody's deposits were stolen. Even in Spain, banks went under and people lost all of their life savings. So what we'd seen in 2008 was that nobody knew who owned anything in the financial system because it was all leveraged. It was rehypothecated, reused and reused and reused. Then in 2012, we realized that not even governments were safe and nor was the banking system. Um, and that there was now things called bank bail-ins where they would take your money. It was at that point I realized that we had to do something about this. 
I've had so many friends of mine go bankrupt. People lost all their life savings. And I thought, I need to do something about it. What can I do? That journey was the start of the journey of Real Vision. I thought, I need to help people, educate people, create a way that people can take control of their own financial lives. Um, so we thought, well, let's democratize the very best financial intelligence and give that to people that they didn't have before. So we started, you know, before Real Vision, long-form financial interviews and discussions didn't exist. We invented the whole kind of genre. We brought on the very best hedge fund managers, thinkers, strategists, analysts, and let other people learn from them. So that was a game changer. But the other thing that I was doing at the time is I thought maybe there's a way to set up a safe bank, um, something that just holds U.S. treasuries, doesn't do rehypothecation. And I went around the world trying that, uh, and it was really difficult. I went with some family offices and other investors to try and do it. And a mate of mine at the time, back in 2012, said, hey, listen, you should take a look at Bitcoin. Um, and it, it already had been on my radar screen. So I kind of did the work on it. And then I think I wrote the first ever macroeconomic strategy paper on Bitcoin back in 2013 when I bought it for the first time. Uh, luckily, the friend of mine, Emil Woods uh, and Chad Cascarilla, Chad went on to form uh, Paxos. They had built an exchange called ItBit. So it was one of the first crypto exchanges. It was one of the ones that didn't blow up with Mt. Gox. And so I, I bought Bitcoin at 200 bucks, wrote a piece saying, listen, if I just do kind of a stock to flow model and, and look at it versus gold, I think Bitcoin's probably worth a million dollars. So I then discounted myself by 90% because clearly I'm a moron, a million dollars when it's trading 200 and said, okay, fine. It's worth a hundred thousand dollars. It's trading at 200. This is the best risk reward of our entire lifetimes. Um, and that set me off on my journey. And I held it all the way through, sold it out in 2017, bought back in 2020. And then I'd always been involved. We took, in, in Real Vision as well, we took everybody with us on the journey because I knew that crypto and macro were going to meet. Um, and 2020 is when they met, when people really started to understand the power of um, digital assets and how they can change your life and change the financial system and could be the basis for everything that we need. So... We've been educating people through Real Vision. The first ever video in 2014 was about Bitcoin. And it was a video called The Great Reset, how this is all going to come together. And that thesis has been playing out over time. Um, then, I guess, 2021, I started getting deeper into Ethereum space. And then, and then into NFT spaces, I started to appreciate the power of what was doing around that. At the same time, I started two other businesses, one called Exponential Age Asset Management, which was a way for institutions to allocate capital into the digital asset space via hedge funds. So we're a fund of hedge funds. And in addition to that, I co-founded a business called Science Magic Studios, um, which aims to tokenize the world's largest cultural communities. So that's music, fashion, fashion and luxury, um, entertainment and sports. So we're working with a number of brands in that space because i think you know everything is going on blockchain so i wanted to kind of cover the different angles and help move the space forward so that's my story love, love to hear that and i want to actually so you talk about blockchains moving things forward and kind of like going that direction and i couldn't agree more um you know that's something where uh, i I'm, I'm extremely passionate about that education in fact 
I, you know, background, I'm, I'm actually writing a book uh, with Penguin Publishing with, with a co-author. I co-authored the first Harvard Business Review article about NFTs and see the power of that in that digital ownership. But one of the things you talk about is the integration of sort of crypto, financials, blockchain, all across the board. It's something that I, I know that you believe in. Um, I'm curious in your mind, how you reconcile, you talked about building a safe bank, and I almost kind of like did the chuckle where I'm like, safe bank, no such thing, right? And that's kind of the idea of crypto sometimes. Um, how do you reconcile the idea of the pushback we get, particularly from large governments, when it comes to the integration of things like crypto, uh, like blockchain in general, like NFTs? And, and what do you think the timeline is until those things start to actually merge a little tighter? So I think it's been ongoing since the beginning. I mean, I remember going back to my alma mater of Goldman Sachs back in 2015, and they had a blockchain team. JP Morgan's got one. BlackRock's been here for a long time now, not just because of the recent announcements, but they've been involved in the space. Apollo, one of the other biggest asset managers in the world, they've got a whole crypto team. You know, Texas Teachers Retirement System, they've got a crypto investment team. Um, some of the sovereign wealth funds, they're involved in the space. So it is all happening. People just don't see this stuff. People don't realize that the largest issuer of NFTs in the world is probably Ticketmaster. People don't realize about what Starbucks has done. People don't realize about what Reddit's done. There's so much happening. So we're seeing at every level, everything that is digitized is coalescing towards blockchain technology. Because in a digital world, you can create infinite amounts of everything for virtually no cost. So the world can't operate digitally without any store of value because there's no value in that world because there's no scarcity, it's all abundance. So blockchain solves a very core issue which is scarcity in a digital world. So therefore you can have assets that retain value. Now those assets happen to be, you know, whether it's programmable smart contracts or whether it's cryptocurrencies and a whole bunch of other applications. So this is not only the rails for the financial system. We're already seeing, I think there's about 100 billion of bonds that have already gone onto blockchain. We will see almost all securities, bonds, derivatives, all of them go onto blockchain. Most of those things are basically smart contracts. So it's very easy to do that. We will see the settlement layer um, currency. So we're seeing central bank digital currencies and stable coins. That's all ongoing. I mean, the Bank of England, India, China, Singapore, Europe, they're all doing it. So that's all happening. Then we've got, um, we've got the brands coming into the space. We've seen Louis Vuitton, Moe, Hennessy, that big group. They've got a bunch, of, um, a bunch of initiatives that have been trying with NFTs. A lot of the fashion brands, a lot of the sports brands have started to see it. Um, so we're seeing that cultural movement happening as well. We're seeing the investment movement of all the investors I've talked about before. We're seeing the gaming industry starting to adopt some of this as well. So it's kind of happening at every level. I mean, we've got PayPal with cryptocurrency. So it's within the global payment system as well. So I know people don't see it because they, they expect some big bang moment where all the governments stand up and say, hurrah, we're all going to Bitcoin. It doesn't work that way. It works like this trickle that becomes a river that becomes a flood that eventually t consumes everything. So it's an ongoing process. So if you look at the number of wallets, that um, active wallets globally, I mean, it just keeps rising. Even last year, it rose 42% in a year when the market was down 80%. It's extraordinary that we're seeing the growth of this adoption. And this next phase 
is only going to get bigger. And before, you know, by the time we get to 2026 or so, we'll be at over a billion people with what a billion wallets or maybe more, depending on the, what the central bank digital currencies do. So I just think it's relentless and it's happening. But people, for some reason, unless the price is going up every day, they don't see it. And then, you know, we get these huge boom busts in prices. But it's all part of the bigger picture narrative. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great, great point. I mean, we were talking earlier like about... I think it was the McKinsey study on cell phones where they said the global market was going to be 500,000 over time, but it was looking at them as it was then versus as it was in the future, which obviously, you know, billions of cell phones exist. And I, I love the analogy you make of the sort of slow trickle over time. Um, you made a comment there, which is after my own heart. You mentioned Starbucks. I work with Adam and that team on the Starbucks business. So you, you, I got to do a follow-up question there. Yeah, Adam, um, Adam was just on Real Vision on Friday, actually. Yeah, with he's... Tarek from Science Magic Studios, who was the guy who who brought the, um, the Adidas Web3 stuff to life and then came and joined us at Science Magic Studios. So it's a great conversation. That's one that I saw and I, I got to catch up on because it's, uh, I know Adam is always like really thoughtful in the way he approaches things. And the, the, it's, you look at those leaders like the Adidas and the Nikes and the Starbucks. So I, I guess the follow-up question to that is whether it's you know NFTs or even crypto, because you mentioned a few in there, what companies do you see as sort of the leaders who are positively adopting the blockchain and moving that world forward, um, you know, as you kind of mentioned a couple in there, but I'm curious who you really have your eyes laser focused on. So, you know, it's at two levels again. One is how the financial system adopts it, but it's rails because that's needed. The other is how we integrate Web3. And we're still all trying to figure out the roadmap for that. But I was speaking to Ian Rogers, a good friend of mine, who was the chief experience officer of Ledger, and I think he was in seeing, I don't know, one of the heads of LVMH or Gucci, one of the big fashion houses, to talk about NFTs. And the guy just looked at him and said, yeah, of course I get it. It's just, he said, we sell scarcity. This is just digital scarcity. So I think the fashion industry is going to be fast with it. Uh, we're already seeing that. But, you know, there's a lot of the sport, big sports franchises thinking about how they can do this, how they can bring community loyalty reward systems within their ecosystems. Um, and I think that's very interesting. The music industry keeps trying, but it's really hard because of IP rights. So, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to people in the music industry about how we can move that forward. But it, it, it is tricky. But people are starting to think about that. Um, so I, I see it everywhere. I loved what Ticketmaster did. Again, most people didn't realize. I think they've issued 14 million NFTs, something like that. And what they basically did is they just changed their... Ticketmaster wallet for when you go to a sporting event or a concert, and they included Web3 within it. And then after you went to the, the event, they drop you NFTs. Nothing more, just gave you an airdrop to say, hey, you went to the event, here's your memento. Genius idea. So they start building a social graph. What can they do with that? Don't know yet, but they're a smart team. So they're looking at it. I've also been uh, talking to the guys at LinkedIn about credentialization. 
how they can use uh, NFTs as credentials to prove, yeah, because there's a lot of fraudulent stuff around about proving stuff. So I'm seeing that. That's, that's really interesting as well, how social media will do it. I mean, the team at um, Instagram really tried to push it forward, then it got stopped for a while. But I think it will come back as well. Uh, you know, that team is passionate about, about the integration of Web3 within, you know, a massive community tool like in Instagram. I think Twitter is, or X is going to be a very interesting place. Let's see what he does, because I think he's going to use uh, crypto as a payment system um, because it's so globalized. He can't use Stripe to pay creators um, and creator to creator payments can't happen in that format. Not everybody has access to dollars. So I kind of have a, I have a weird idea that he's going to use Doge as a way because most people have on ramps and off ramps from Doge into their own domestic currencies or whatever. So there's a lot happening and a lot I think comes out of this next cycle that I'm really interested in. But I think just the two sides is how the financial system uses it and then how brands culture um, adopt it at scale. Um, those are the big things for me. Love that. I, I think that there's a lot, uh, first of all, a lot there as far as the, uh, the direction it goes. I, I love the fact that you made the points you made about Ticketmaster where it's very similar to Reddit in the sense that, you know, they don't need to say this is an NFT or shout it from the rooftops. They just need to integrate the technology in a logical way for their users. And uh, the Ticketmaster example, I think, is a really strong one with ticketing being such a, a strong play. Um, I, I want to go to something you've you've kind of said in the past where where I've heard you say many times in related to Real Vision. I'll give you a sec to talk a little bit about Real Vision, where you've talked about the idea of knowledge plus two, times tools times network equals success. Um, I'd love for you to unpack that for people because I think it's such a fascinating framework that uh, that is simple yet so complex at the same time. So I'd love to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that as well and what you're doing at Real Vision there. Yeah, we with Real Vision, it was about three years ago, I realized that we built more than just a media company, which I wasn't that interested in just media. I wanted to see what else we could do, how we could really help change people's lives. And I realized we built a community and that was before community was the trendiest word of the time. So I started thinking, okay, how do we really lean into that and give the community what it needs? And you know, what do people need in their financial lives? Well, they need knowledge, right? We were in the business of knowledge. That's what Real Vision does and is known for. So knowledge, okay, great. But knowledge alone isn't enough. You kind of need to apply it and you need the tools to apply your knowledge. We didn't have any tools on Real Vision. We just had videos and some research. And then I was thinking, okay, well, where does community play into that? And I realized the power of networks. So I think that knowledge and tools, so knowledge multiplied by tools, okay, that's an amazing thing. And that's where most people get to. So you accumulate knowledge, you get more tools. And before you know it, you're kind of operating. You're only standing on your own two feet. The network is the multiplier. And we realized that from the ludicrous people who are in the Real Vision network. I mean, the people who watch Real Vision videos, we've had some of the world's most famous music artists, some of the world's biggest investors, the world's most famous hedge fund managers. We've had some of the leading kind of product teams from Silicon Valley. We've got retired taxi drivers, some guy who owns Safari um, game reserves up the coast of Africa. We've got everybody, a truck driver who goes around the United States and posts on Twitter for us observations of what he's seeing about the economy. He's a super smart guy. 
So we've got this incredible network of global experts in 121 countries. And we thought, well, imagine if you give them the knowledge and the tools and then you put them together, what could happen? That is really powerful. And so what we started building was a platform for Real Vision. And over the last year, we've hired a massive amount of engineering talent to build this entire new platform that launches to members end of this month, first week of September. And that's going to give you a much more powerful experience in how you engage in content. Uh, it also has two or three different AIs uh, embedded to help you answer questions as you go, define things, summarize content, just make that journey more powerful to augment you. Because everybody needs augmentation. Not everybody's an expert in everything, but we want to get them on that journey from information to knowledge to wisdom. So there's all of that. And then tools, you know, we've got the charting and market pricing and all of that stuff. But we're also integrating portfolio management, risk management tools to help you understand what you're, the, the risks you're running, how you're running them, what's driving your portfolio, all the things that most ordinary people don't really know. So we're helping with that. And that has AI insights as well to help explain it to you. Um, so there's a whole bunch of tools coming. And then in addition, we've got the network. And the network, we've created this incredible new tool, which is a globe where you can see all the Real Vision members around the world. You can connect directly with them, create groups in a much kind of nicer format. But also we're creating sub-communities. We've got one called the Real Vision and the RVIP Club, which is a kind of super exclusive club uh, globally of around 250 people. Uh, we hold events for them, you know, dinners, find them opportunities, get them together, get them generating magic between each other. And that's like an expert network. In addition, we've got um, two NFT communities. One is the Genesis community that came out of the pro crypto community. The other one is the Real Vision Collective, which is a broader Web3 community. Um, and we're building more and more community tools. And the idea is to feed those communities with even more knowledge, connections, opportunities to get together, share ideas. And if you've got an educated group of people with the tools that they need for success and a network, it's a fucking superpower. I, I love that. And I think what you talk, what, when I hear what you're talking about, there's this access, right? At varying levels of participation, varying levels of topics, varying levels of understanding, because you talk about this sort of spectrum of financial education opportunities. Um, do you think that others follow suit? Like, do you think the idea of financial news and education is going to evolve in the direction that you're taking it as well across the board? Or do you think like the more traditional route of it that people have gone in the past? will? like, do you think this will continue to evolve in that direction across the board? Yes, I, I think that the old media model is dead. Nobody tunes into CNBC. The average audience age is like 77 years old. People talking at you from behind the desk, behind the screens is dead. Nobody wants it. We're in a world like this, which is genuine, freeform, real. So even Real Vision, at first it was all deep dive interviews with the world's most famous people. And you could drop over the shoulder. It was a more casual way of doing it, which is what engaged people. But we are now have really lean into community. We have town halls. We tell them what we're building. We're doing all the stuff. You know, we've learned a lot from how the Web3 community has built community and really being together in it. It's not us and them. It's like we're all in this together. We're all in the journey together. And that becomes authentic. It also becomes easier to learn. It's easier to learn from your peer group. It's easier to learn from a mate of yours who wants to teach you about astrophysics than it is to pick up an astrophysics book or go to university to do it. 
because you're engaged in a different type of conversation. So I think the power of this kind of thing, putting the power back in the hands of people by not saying we're the experts, follow our advice. We're saying here's a whole bunch of knowledge from lots of curated smart people. Do with it what you need. But the best thing for you to do is learn how to do this. Don't follow people blindly. And Real Vision's really, really done that at scale for people. And that's why it changed so many people's lives. I and mean, I get that email literally every day. It's, Thank you for changing my life. That's not me. That's Real Vision, all of the guests, the community, and all of the things that we've done so far. I, you know, I, I'm curious about that because you talk about – you talk to a lot of people of a lot of sources of information. So, so you're going in there uh, getting expert opinions on a lot of things. What's something you change your mind on, whether it's recently or in the past few years, that has been a shift in your personal mindset in talking to all of those really smart people on specific topics that they're super deep on? So it happens all the time in every conversation I have. A lot of people find this very hard, unless you've been doing it for a long time, is you can have a core thesis and you have to, in your head, hold probabilities of all the different ways you could be wrong. And you adjust those in real time by having conversations with people. Did I think of that? Does that make a difference? Are they right on that? And you're constantly testing yourself. You have to live in this zone of, of um, confidence, but insecurity. It's kind of this weird thing. And, and that's the secret to success. So it happens to me literally every time I have a conversation with somebody, it just shifts the probabilities. I think the biggest change that I personally had in my view on the world is I was a traditional macro guy. Yes, I was involved in crypto for a long time. Uh, I kind of understood exponential trends, but the one thing macro people never understood was technology. There was like a bunch of the VCs. They were like, we didn't really understand what they did. And then the NASDAQ kept going up and we would keep screaming bubble and it kept going up and we missed Amazon. We missed the whole lot because, you know, peas were expensive or whatever it was. And I just sat, after I really understood crypto, Metcalf's law, and a whole bunch of other stuff, I just sat and asked myself the honest question is, what am I missing? And that's when the whole world of the exponential age unveiled itself to me. You know, how technological adoption is happening at scale. And I realized that however unfavorable she's become, Kathy Woods was dead right. And I, I came to similar conclusions without actually knowing of all of her work but started to piece these things together and say, oh, okay, this is a lot bigger and crypto is just part of this as well. That was a fundamental change for me because I was always the guy looking for the crisis and that's where I've made a lot of money um, with the occasional kind of knock it out the park bet like crypto. And then I realized actually there's a bigger opportunity here to buy this secular trend that I had not seen really as a secular trend I just saw it as a bubble. And then once I saw that, I couldn't unsee it. And that's kind of changed my life. And a lot of that was from conversations with people on Real Vision who got me to open my eyes that, okay, there's something else going on here that I'm missing. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. And then we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love to hear that. Yeah, we, um, it, it's funny. Our, our, our thing on this show, we try to be more of a business-focused show and say, you know, disagree without being disagreeable is always our mantra because there's always room to change your mind. And I love that you have that open sort of growth mindset in general. But you talked about a lot of sort of, in that answer, you talked about a lot of things you've been through in the past. And I think for a lot of people here, we have a lot of listeners who maybe this is their first time in a crypto market cycle. Maybe this is their first time in any sort of bear market. Um, you've seen a lot of market cycles. Uh, what's a piece of advice you would give to new investors as they're starting their career, whether it's in finance or, or crypto, or even if they're just casually dabbing as someone who has seen so many market cycles and worked on so many? Okay, there is a real superpower here. And it's pretty easy and people get lost in this is once you've identified a secular trend crypto is a secular trend it works on those on a log chart over time it's a perfect log chart so so that tells you okay this is an asset that's in a secular trend then your entire job is to wait for the business cycle to discount it and buy and then you just hold on and it's really about time horizon because when you ask most people, well, how long is this crypto thing going to take to play out? They'll say 10 years. Then you ask them what they've done in their portfolio. They're like, well, I flipped from this to this and I sold this and I bought that. And I think it's a bit overbought. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing this? Just buy it, hold it. And when you've got extra cash flow and you can afford to do it, buy more, particularly in the big weak points. So I went back and looked at how I had traded crypto in the past and i thought i'd done a great job bought it at 200 it went up to 2000 back in 2013 12 13 um it then fell 85 percent. i held on because i had a long-term time horizon i'm like fine this is this is how it's going to go we'll see where it goes then 2017 there was the forking wars i didn't really understand what was going on i was worried that i'd back the wrong chain i didn't have a deep enough knowledge so i'm like okay i'm out and I'd made 10 times my money, so I walked away, thought I was George Soros, some sort of super investing hero. It then went up another 10x after I sold out. I'm like, bloody hell. Then it collapsed again. And then I bought in into that massive sell-off that happened in March 2020. So I thought, yeah, great. You buy, you buy the dips. You sold out into strength. You're great. I went back, and I massively sized up in March 2020 versus my first investment. I went back and calculated, had I just kept my initial investment and done nothing, I'd have made five times as much money. Then I calculated, well, what happens if I'd use the business cycle, or you might call it the halving cycle, because they happen to be highly correlated. If I'd use the halving cycle just to add the same amount again every time it got there to my initial bet, which was not that big, I would have made 25 times as much money. And that made me realize the, really the power of how to trade a secular trend. So for most people, simplify everything. Everybody's stuck in the middle of the bell curve where they're arguing, bickering, switching from one currency to another or one NFT project to another, when really that whole bell curve is either be the moron on the left or the Jedi on the right, which is it's going up, so own it. No, I love that. And Joey, I saw your hand fly up during that answer. I'll let you get in here with the question as, as we keep going. And Rao, I, I forget how long we have you, so let us know if you have a hard stop at any point. Obviously, we appreciate all the time you can give us. But Joey, go ahead and get in here. Yeah, it made me think back. So I owned a business 
in 2008, nine, when everything crashed and went to shit. And my uncle is one of the smartest guys I know and big, been investing a really long time. And what you were talking about reminded me of what he said back then was like, you know, the money I haven't, cause I asked them, I said, you know, everything's crashing. You're going to pull everything out. And he was like, no. I said, well, why? It's all going to crash. He said, because all the money that I've invested is money that I don't need. And if I pull it out now, you know, why would I pull it out now when I know in 10 years, to your point of how everything is cyclical and everything follows trends. And he was like, why would I pull it out if I know in 10 years we're going to be above where we were before the crash? And of course, you know, 10 years later, 2000, whatever it was, 18, you know, people that had left their money in, when everything crashed in 2008 and 2009 were way ahead before that crash because everything came back and came back stronger than ever. And I think that's to your point, people don't lack the patience or the, the foresight to understand that there, everything is so cyclical and there, and there are trends. And, and like, to your point, the bell curve, and I think you guys teaching and showing people that is incredible because so many people, they just, they get as soon as something drops, they get scared and they get out. But the other issue is, and this came up on a Twitter space recently, and it was a comment from somebody who's dead right, is that's not an excuse to hold shitty assets, right? So there's a everybody's got dust of some idea that they had, they kept, and it just never recovered. So you know, a bunch of stuff like in 2001 never got back to where it did. So that's again why I try not to be too cute with this. Um, and keep it broad. So, you know, generally speaking, Ethereum is my biggest bet because I think that the, you know, that it's the broadest based um, blockchain network that has the most number of applications. I've got a few other bets, but I, but I try not to say, well, it's definitely going to be the near protocol and I'm just going to have everything in that and suddenly I'm down 99% and it never goes back to the high. So if you're doing long-term stuff, make sure it's in something that is an approvable adoption cycle with a long-term trend that's the other key thing that people need to understand and then it's it is actually as easy as that investing if you're investing because you need the money tomorrow you shouldn't be investing if you're investing I... because your future self wants wealth in the future which is what most of us invest for then you can have a long-term time horizon it's a superpower I feel like Raul was talking to me directly about my cool man's universe that's still sitting in my wallet because I haven't sold it yet because I'm hoping one day it'll go up more than where it's at at 0.03 because I've lost so much. And I, I, it hits right, it hits home, Raul. And I know Cap feels the same way about that one. Yeah, I feel, atta- I feel attacked. But you know what? There's always that tax loss harvesting. Um, Raul, let me ask you a, a follow-up on something you just said there because you have been very vocal about – you know, Ethereum being a large part of the future of the financial ecosystem and ecosystem across the world as a whole. And I know it's your biggest bet. There's there's a joke. Now that we've had you for a little bit, there's probably a joke to be had here about calls that I won't make, but because um, I know that's been a big discussion <laughs> of topic. But I was like, I can't come out the gate with that one. But um, why do you see that? Can you expand on that view of where you see Ethereum playing a role in the future? I'm no Ethereum maxi. I'm an observer of network adoption. That's really, that's it. So I'm agnostic to how the world plays out. I just want to make sure I've got the right bets. So there are more developers, more activity, more wallets on Ethereum than anything else. Now, go and have a conversation with a large brand or a large financial institution and tell them to use some random chain. 
they're worried, right? It's a difficult decision. What happens if these things are orphaned? What happens if this this uh, this uh, blockchain I built it on is the next EOS and it's dead, right? Nobody wants that. So network adoption, even if things are suboptimal, because there are better chains than Ethereum, it's very hard to make a decision not to, which is why we're seeing so many of these uh, layer ones become layer two um, layer twos on Ethereum. I think that's a trend that's going to continue. Now, it doesn't mean there won't be others, but I think in the end, we'll get down to kind of five key blockchains and other stuff will be layer ones, layer twos, or specific use cases. Um, so just when I zoom out, I just think, okay, Ethereum seems to be the one that has the broadest Metcalf, provable Metcalf's law. Bitcoin didn't because there was less application layers. Now we're seeing ordinals and other stuff. It's like, okay, maybe we can build different network effects on, on top of Bitcoin. Uh, and then you see um, projects earlier in their cycle, like Solana. Solana has a lot of the attributes that we see from early stage uh, Ethereum after the crash, which Ethereum had in 2018. It was down 97.5%, much like Solana was. But what we've actually got is a very vibrant ecosystem uh, at a number of different levels. And it's like, you know, is there a chance that this is one of the large ones? Could be. I could be dead wrong, too. Um, and other people will have their other choices around that. But Ethereum just seems so obvious. It's like buying the NASDAQ, you know, call, the, call Bitcoin the S&P and, then, and um, Ethereum the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ outperforms the the S&P over time because it's technology and technology has network adoption and it's moving faster. So those are the two bets. They'll both go up. Simple as that. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I have to ask a very important follow-up question. Sounds like a big dog you got there. What type of doggo do you have? Uh, I, I did have two doggos. Sadly, I lost one last week. Um, they are both Cayman Islands mutts, but they're basically a mix between Ridgebacks and Labradors. So she is a yeah, she's quite big, uh, old old and a bit fat and a little bit grumpy when the gardener's come. So the pool guy's here, so she's shouting at him. Yeah, Even that's... though she sees him every week and knows exactly who he is, but she must protect us from this threat. Oh, yeah. No, my, 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 I have a, I have a, like a, a Labrador who's uh, probably in the 90 to 100 pound range who must protect me from every leaf that blows across my lawn. So I totally feel that. Um, uh, going back to uh, just the overall macro picture, I want to ask you a few macro questions again. I think you you have this long-term vision, you have this history, and you have a unique set of skills and talk to a lot of people. Where do you see central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, playing into this sort of global monetary system as we move forward? So everything is being digitized. Once you realize that, you realize where the trend lies. So anything that can be digitized will be because it's a, it's more efficient and because of things like smart contracts, there's stuff you can do that you couldn't do before. So it's been absolutely clear, Singapore, India, China, the ECB, the Bank of England, they're all going to central bank digital currencies. Why? It's a number of levels. One, it's just a more efficient way of doing things. B is they want to blend monetary policy and fiscal policy together. We saw that in the pandemic. Uh, that will be more likely used. So they can give direct stimulus to direct individuals um, via this. But there's also nefarious sides as well, right? Because they could charge savers a lower interest rate and people who are, you know, um, they can give different interest rates to different people. They can do all sorts of different things. Now, that's going to change how economics works in an economy. Is that good or bad? I think it's both. 
people worry about the privacy and everything else. I, I keep asking people, so how, how much do you use cash? And the answer is to get my hair cut and to, um, to pay the valet guy. <laughs> That's it. It's not even to buy weed anymore because it's legal. You just go into a store. So it's like nobody uses cash. But we're all on Twitter all day. We've verified ourselves. We're on Google. We have our identity. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. We, we lost our privacy years ago. So I just don't think that that's, that's the fight. Now, the government having control over your finances, they do anyway. You've got a bank account. You've got credit cards. They can shut you out immediately. And we see that repeatedly. The Russians learned that en masse. So in the end, I just think of central bank digital currencies as non-globalized stable coins. So they're, you know, the, let's say the digital euro, it's not going to be used for cross-border payments easily. It doesn't just connect. Now, do they make those interoperable? They're all talking about doing that. How can they do it? But really, you know, stable coins have actually solved that. They're all in dollars um, generally. But intrapayments within countries will just go onto blockchain rails. And it kind of makes sense. It's just a more efficient way of doing it. So I know everybody fears everything. I just think, well, it's the adoption of the technology. If they do that, I mean, I've seen it in India where they went to a uh, amazing payment system um, called UPI, it's Universal Payments Interface, that allows instant peer-to-peer payments. And what they found is the massive fintech layer got built on top. So think of what a CBDC built on whatever chain, however it works, what can be built on that to bridge the TradFi world with the new world? That, that's what I'm really interested in because you're going to blow apart all of those bridges and make it easier to just interoperably operate across different blockchains in different ways in a way that abstracts it all away, much like I don't even know what phone you're talking on or what network you're on or what software you're running or what headphones you do. It doesn't matter. It's like we're just doing this. Yeah, it always cracks. One of the things you mentioned and that always cracks me up when people like I've literally seen people posting on Facebook from their iPhone about privacy concerns. And it's like, I think they might have missed the plot on that one. Um, when you see like what where we're at, as far as you know, there there is that sort of trade off that you have. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. There's more governments are cranking down on control over people over time. I don't dispute that. It's not a good thing. It's one of the reasons I moved to the Cayman Islands a long time ago was I just wanted to be kind of out of the stresses of a system with an aging population that doesn't have enough tax take to pay its bills. They will only crack down more and more on people over time to control the money because there's not enough money for the interest payments that go on in the economy. With that said, actually, that that brings up an interesting question where we talk all the time about countries in general that are like I've contended. I've been very frustrated with the United States, like almost. Uh, going from a cradle of innovation of historical value, you know, in years, years past to uh, being very uh, stingy with how they've handled things like the crypto and blockchain industries on the whole. Are there countries that stick out to you on the world as a whole that you're like, you know what, that is a country that is a country or countries that are moving things in the correct direction? Yeah. um, Sopnendu Mohanty from Singapore, who's the chief fintech officer for the Monetary Authority of Singapore. He's been on Realvision a few times, a good friend of mine. Singapore's doing the right thing. So um, Singapore is being thoughtful in how it regulates. Um, The Middle East is becoming very good at this as well. Switzerland did a great job. The EU has done a decent job. Uh, Who'd have thought it? 
Um, you know, even within places like Germany, things are moving fast. The UK, I think, is about to really enter the world stage. I think they've seen the US umming and ahhing, like, do we want to do this? We're scared of losing our reserve currency control. And the UK is fabulous at regulatory arbitrage. When the US falters, they take it. So that's why the global FX market was the UK. The global euro dollar market was the UK. The global derivatives market was the UK. And I think the UK has seen the opportunity here. As long as it can hold its shit together without losing another government, uh, it stands a chance. So, yeah, I see a lot of optimistic stuff going on uh, all around. And I think the US will get there in the end. It's just, it's got the most to lose, so it's the most scared. People fear change generally. And if you look at the US politicians, they're the oldest politicians outside of Japan. Um, and so they fear change. I, I get it. People don't, don't know what it means and they're scared of it. So it takes time. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's um, when you have the biggest, it's, you know, any, anybody who's a, um, you know, a poker player knows when you have a bigger stack of chips to protect, there are a couple of ways to handle it. And sometimes it's a little bit more conservative depending on the situation. And, and it totally, totally follows that way. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, like we're, there's big brands I've worked at like Nestle, which are more conservative and ones that are more forward thinking, like progressive who want to think about what's coming next. And, um, you know, both can potentially be successful depending on how you approach. Um, I guess like thinking about, you know, the future in general. So if somebody is looking in general at their, uh, you know, financial portfolio, so it could be across the board. What are the biggest risks you see uh, in how people approach that over the next, uh, let's say like, you know, three to five years. If somebody is in, you know, this crypto space kicking around and they're trying to figure out how they're balancing things, what do you see as risk factors and headwinds for the financial markets as a whole? So the risks were all last year, the big risk, which was the business cycle risk. We had that, right? Everything sold off. I mean, it was the worst time for most assets because bonds sold off as well as equities, as, as well as crypto, as well as commodities. There was literally nowhere to hide. So we had a massive contraction in global wealth that happened last year. So we're more in the macro spring stage right now where the green shoots are there. We might have a falter at some point, a larger correction, but I think it's from higher levels and people will worry again. Oh my God, are we going back down the toilet? And then crypto uh, macro summer kicks in and everything starts moving forwards as recovery starts showing its face. So there are always esoteric risks. You know, there's obviously the, geopolitical risks that are there but you have to ask yourself what is the response to something happening it's usually more printing of money which drives assets up i think one of the risks people face is if i'm right in my thesis around the everything code then the use of central bank balance sheets and the debasement of currency continues at least till the end of this decade and what people don't realize is they need to measure that the, their portfolios against that because if so an asset is just future deferred consumption so it's your reward to yourself later when maybe you don't have an income or whatever or you want to buy a larger thing now the problem is, is those larger things you might buy like houses are going up because of the debasement of the balance sheet Our incomes aren't going up at the same time and when you break down assets and divide them by just the fed balance sheet is a simple way of doing it you find the S&P 500 has gone nowhere. Gold has gone negative. Real estate has, has been negative. So these have been investments that have actually made your future self poorer, even though optically they've gone up in price. 
And I only found two major assets that did outperform the balance sheet, and that was uh, the NASDAQ and crypto. So I think it, it does matter what assets you have. And again, to simplify it down is make sure you own secular trends. You will have ups and downs, unforeseen things. You know, who knows what's about to happen to the bond market right now? You know, as the Chinese currency is weakening and the Japanese currency is weakening, they're buying less bonds while the Treasury is issuing it. Could the bond market blow up? Could that cause another sell-off? Of course, you should expect all of those things. Volatility is an expected course of events and you should factor it in and ask yourself, am I comfortable with the risk I'm taking to allow a 15% pullback? Could I have another bear market pullback of 20%? Does that phase me? You know, that's the equity pullback. You know, in crypto, would it, would it destroy my, my future self if we had a 50% sharp decline? Because it can happen in crypto. We've all seen it before. So it's, it's, it's the balance of risk, having the right time horizon, and realizing at the moment you really want to panic because something's going on in the Straits of Taiwan and you think, oh my God, we're going to world war. You've got to realize that the most likely outcome in that situation is more cowbell, which is more stimulus. Because nobody, no government wants this to fall apart. The reason being is because there's this massive cohort of pensioners and they will destroy all of their retirement savings and the system's over levered. So you can't allow the value of collateral to go down. So there is always risks in everything. Just make sure how you invest allows you to stomach those risks and even better buy when those things happen. If you believe in the secular trend, if you're in a non-secular trend, if you're trading oil, which has basically been an up-down market like most commodities, then you have to, you have to think things very differently. So I actually I'm curious what your thoughts are. You, you mentioned more cowbell, right? What are your thoughts on that more cowbell, right? In 2008, there was a lot of uh, sort of quantitative easing that went down. And some people feel like that's putting us on a crash course for the future. We're buying from Peter to pay Paul. Are you in favor of that sort of action in the time like 2008, which I, I, again, like I have, I have my own thoughts, which I'll obviously withhold. I, I generally was, I, I guess, but what is your thoughts on sort of when, we do get those sort of bailout scenarios and they protect the entire economic system from failing. But a lot of people say that that protects bad system and bad actors. Okay. Firstly, should they do it? The moral or economic argument is if you don't, the system fails, which destroys wealth at scale for everyone. So you can either have your wealth destroyed quickly through total collapse or you can have it destroyed slowly via the mutualization of all of this, which is what debasement does. It mutualizes the losses of the system amongst the many. The issue is, is the people who get penalized are the wage earners because their wages don't go up in real terms, while asset owners do fine because assets offset the, uh, the rise in the balance sheet. So, there's that navigation, which is why the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. It's driven by this, this factor is one of the key factors. But the other issue is, and we're seeing it right now, and I wrote, I've got a whole thesis on this called The Everything Code, which covers many, many angles. But essentially, I managed to prove that all quantitative easing, all government debt issuance basically has been to, all government debt issuance 
ahead, um, over trend rate of GDP growth has been just to service the existing debts. That, those are interest payments. And what happens is after three and a half to four years, as the debts come up to mature, what they do is they shove them onto the central bank balance sheet in economic weakness. And we've seen that cycle repeat and repeats exactly the same as the Bitcoin halving cycle. Everybody in the world had a debt jubilee in 2008. Debt jubilees normally were thought of as cancelling of all the debt so nobody has to pay the debt. This jubilee was a unique one because they said nobody has to pay the interest. We'll just reset all interest rates to zero. And that gave the system a chance to try and heal itself. Now, it never did. We never got rid of the debt. So every time the business cycle comes, interest rates rise because inflation rises a bit. Interest rates rise. The central bank has to stop it. And before you know it, the central banks have to pay a higher interest rate on their debt. But rates have been rising. The economy slows down more QE. And it happens every single time. We're now heading into that point, which is like fourth quarter of this year into, let's say, June of next year, where we start to see the, the economic impacts of the interest rate rises. We're starting to see in the bond market the issue of the Treasury having to issue more bonds to pay the higher interest rate on the bonds that they've got in existence. We've got something like 13 trillion of bonds to roll, to refinance um, over the next nine months. That can't be done at higher rates without more issuing of bonds and rates going up higher, et cetera, et cetera, and it gets out of control. The only way of doing it is by cutting rates. So I think the Fed are waiting as long as possible to see inflation undershoot their target so they can bring rates back down to trend rate of GDP growth. It's about 1.75%. Um, and they have to do QE because there's no other way of doing it without the thing getting out of control. And, I, and I've also proven that every single major central bank in the world is doing exactly the same thing. The Japanese, the Europeans, the Brits, etc., all doing the same thing. So it's like a global accord on how to manage a debt when all of the governments hit over 100% of GDP in debt. So I just think it's an ongoing process. Nobody likes it. But the issue is, is GDP is not growing fast enough to service the debt. And that's driven by GDP is a magic formula, which is um, population growth, um, productivity and debt growth. Those three things drive GDP growth. Problem is, is all the populations are shrinking or are flattened out. Um, productivity has been going negative for a long period of time because of an aging population. And, um, and debt growth kind of reached its nadir in 2008. So the only way is hoping for a productivity miracle. Uh, and that is what's underway with this exponential age. But it's going to take till the end of the decade before it really shows. So, sorry, lots in that. No, no, it's, I mean, it's a great answer because I think it's like, like, I think sometimes we have these large conversations and people, particularly in this space, and I love our friends in, in the crypto space because I'm, I'm living around in here, right? I live in the crypto and, and Web3 world, but I think a lot of people oversimplify versus a nuanced answer like that, which is a little more thoughtful. So I appreciate you going that deep because a lot of people say like, what more debt, debt issued uh, Bitcoin solves this versus actually kind of looking at sort of the historical trends and where it's going. So I, I love that perspective. Um, beyond cryptocurrencies, I guess like, because you're obviously someone who's very forward thinking, right? Like you were early on Bitcoin, you saw the financial crisis come, all these different things, right? What other technologies, emerging technology and technological innovations do you have your eye on and why? So 
I've got my eye on a huge amount of this stuff. I wrote an enormous piece on this called The Exponential Age, and I've, I've put some videos on Real Vision, there's some videos on YouTube. But for me, it's like at the base layer of The Exponential Age is the energy revolution and how the cost of energy from renewables is collapsing over time. And that will only accelerate because of the amount of investment that's going into the space. Um, now, it's not enough currently to cover all the needs and there's not enough storage and there's tons of problems. But, you know, once you throw enough money at problems, they get solved. So the cost of energy comes down. That is a massive multiplier on productivity. It's probably the biggest change you could, humanity could go through. Then there is the compute layer. It's like the speed of compute and the amount of data you can compute. Now, that's already been on Moore's law, but, you know, if we get to quantum or this superconductor breakthrough that may or may not be occurring, then that changes that entire equation. So we have almost infinite compute power. Then you've got AI, which is the knowledge part of that equation, where you have now knowledge was a scarce asset. It's now become an abundant asset, and people haven't figured, got their heads around this. So I'm looking at those technologies. I'm looking at um, robotics. The Internet of Things, which is basically robotics as well, plus AI. You know, if you think of what a Tesla is, it's basically AI plus robotics plus EV. Um, all of these trends together, plus big data, plus all sorts of stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at these things. I'm looking at the application of AI and biotech and how that's going to create a biotech revolution, particularly at the genomics level. Um, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in space. Uh, I think space is an exponential industry. Uh, and it's incredible that a single company has now got more satellites in space than everybody else added together. And that's only going to go further. And what that means for, for space alone, just from network communications, is enormous. For medical sciences, is enormous. Um, and then what it does for what we can do on the moon, what we can do from asteroid mining and all of this other stuff that comes into play from that. Now, I've covered that on Real Vision as well with amazing interview with a guy from NASA. Um, so, and there's a whole bunch more on top of all of this. So there is so much distributed computing power. There's so many things that all come together and they're all hitting adoption phase. And I've been talking about this and everyone was laughing at me last year. They're like, you know, you're a moron, you're an idiot. And then AI hit and everyone's like, holy shit. And, you know, whether that superconductor breakthrough happens or not, that would be an incredible moment. We've also seen a shunt forward in quantum. And that quantum is like AI five years ago, six years ago. And before you know it, we'll have quantum compute. Um, these things are all happening. We've got AR, VR. I mean, what, Apple, Facebook, they're all putting forward the first steps into how these worlds emerge, which is the metaverse, which is another large part of that where we live our digital lives. So yeah, I'm all over this. And blockchain is obviously part of all of this whole trend. Yeah, 100%. Uh, let's uh, let's let uh, Mutasco. Uh, we'll let you get in here with with one question, then I'll, I'll let you get out of here with one final one. Ralph, I've been really appreciative of the time, but Mutasco, go ahead and get in here. Hopefully, I pronounced that right. Cryptic uh, Chelsea. Uh, go go yes. ahead. Here you go. Yeah, thank you. Um, hey, Ralph, um, I've been I've been absorbing your content for a while. Um, I remember one of them where you had talked about real visions. Um, there was a concept that you talked about regarding bringing trading, uh, kind of the trading skills in a metaverse style um, and, and like a, kind of a streaming model. Where is that at? Uh, and do you see the interaction between 
because people are talking about streaming payments and how crypto and tokenization is making that possible. Where do you see that concept that you talked about in Real Vision and the significance of that product within the Real Vision's uh, ecosystem? Look, uh, there's a lot of possible futures of where we go. Um, I do think the metaverse, it's become the most unfashionable thing in the world. And cut to three, four, five years time, it'll be the most fashionable thing in the world. And everybody will suddenly get it. So how that offers opportunities is vast. And it's something that's on our radar screen as we develop our platform for the future. How do we think about this kind of stuff? Um, we are currently building out the Web3 capabilities. I mean, we'll talk a little bit about the Real Vision Collective and other stuff. But we have these NFT communities. We're just... Um, working on our wallet integrations. We've got an on-chain trading league. Um, so that we've been testing and we'll roll that out. We're looking at hive mind portfolios where everybody votes on a portfolio. Um, and maybe could that be tokenized? Could we disrupt asset management by doing these kind of things? Those are on our radar screens. How do we use a real vision token in the effective way that let's say Reddit have used a token? Um, you know, what can we do with that? Uh, how, how could we think about supercharging that space, how do these then integrate as we move towards metaverse experiences? People aren't yet ready to live entirely in a metaverse style experience, but we can move towards it. So it's all the same chain of progress, but there's a lot that needs to get done before we get there. Great answer. I, I'll let you get out. First of all, once again, thank you for so much time. Uh, this has been awesome. I could talk all day or ask questions all day. Um, you know, have been a consumer of your content for quite some time. Um, actually was a late adopter of your content. Um, built when I worked with Meta Good, Bill Ty actually introduced me to some of your work. And I was like, wow, this is really fascinating. And the interviews are uh, thoughtful, insightful, getting into the meat of what the future is. So uh, having you on our show is an honor. It is a privilege. Um, appreciate that very, very much. Um, I'll get you out of here with, with this question because this is a question I love to ask, you know, people like yourself who are very successful, very thoughtful. And that is, I've always thought about the idea that we need to rebrand failure. Oftentimes people look at failure as this, you know, terrible loss that they're taking instead of this learning they're taking. And you've talked about some opportunities you've seen throughout the years. But when I say the word failure, um, I'd love to know about a time in your career, in your life, when you've seen, whether it's your biggest failure or when you've learned in a tremendous amount from, um, what was it, what did you learn and, and how did you change going forward? I don't know if we lost Rao or we lost me. Can you? Uh... Sorry, oh, there you go. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean that's a it's a great question, and there's the, lots of the oh I screwed this up in the past and here's why. But let me see if I can leave you with something different here. Is is you should fear failure at all points because it is a great motivator. But but you have to realize that ninety five percent of all of those fears you live in your head never materialize. You don't want to say something to so-and-so because you're worried they're going to react. Generally never happens. Most of your fears never manifest themselves. It's this human trait of self-preservation. And it, it can really get in your way if you are a person who, via past experiences, fears more than they are optimistic. It's the balance between optimism and fear. And you can't teach it to people. It's, it's a very hard thing to be able to do. But if you do have fear, if fear is something you live with, and we all live with fears, 
The best thing to do with a fear is use it to motivate you. How do I not make that happen? If you worry about something, you manifest it. If you think about how I'm going to solve that problem and how I will definitely not allow that to happen, you will manifest that too. I'm a strong believer that most of the time we can manifest our own destiny by mindset because it opens our minds to how we can do things. So if you definitely think something's going to happen, it will happen. If your biggest fear is X, generally X happens. But if you think the other way around, you can make magic happen. This is remarkably timely based on uh, something I have going on in my head at the moment. So I very much appreciate that actual uh, reframing of it and, uh, and how you approached it. Uh, Raul, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we appreciate this very, very much. And obviously, welcome back anytime. I'm sure we will reach out again when we need a, a big macroeconomic perspective as things go on. And if you have everything you want to talk about with our audience, always welcome open stage. Let me, I just want to leave with one thing is, listen, if you are interested in joining the Real Vision community, and it is a fucking amazing community, we have an NFT mint going on now called the Real Vision Collective. It's a mashup of nine different projects from from this one i think has got you know crypto dick butts to sailor boat to all sorts of cool stuff it's a lot of fun nakamigos the idea is you collect the art you join the rules and community you get in our discord you get token gated content you get a whole bunch of stuff and you start networking amongst this amazing group also for the fun of it and you, you alluded it to earlier i'm famous for buying a bunch of eth call options at the peak of the market in 2021 and I've always said that NFTs are a call option on, on ETH. So actually, as part of this, as a bit of gamification, there's actually 5% of the proceeds of the, of the NFT um, buys ETH call options, and it ends up being a grand special prize that gets allocated to a few people. So it could be like half a million bucks in that if, if um, ETH is at 4,000 by year end. If it doesn't go above 3,000 by year end, it's going to be worth nothing. You'll still have the art, the community, and all the fun that goes with it. So if people are interested in being part of the Real Vision community. It's a great step. It's great art. It's a lot of fun. It's very web free. It's slightly crazy as well. So just go to realvision.com forward slash the collective. Uh, I think the mint closes. It's, it's like 0.069. It's like 100, 120 bucks or something. So it's not expensive. You get a lot for it. You know, it's all about the community and the benefits of that community. Realvision.com forward slash the collective. Check it out. And if you're not following uh, Raul, I don't know what you're doing at this point in your life in the crypto and NFT journey. So uh, give him a follow. Um, excellent conversation this morning. And again, check that out. Uh, definitely something that I think if you are, I mean, if you're at all interested in this world, you talk about the network um, period alone, uh, you're going to get your network value back with that. We've talked about it a lot on this show, the importance of community and network and people who are here for you know, I hate to use the term the right reasons, but here to grow and learn, uh, that's what you're going to get out of that group. And so I think it's a, a great opportunity with that mint coming up and um, check it out for more information. Follow Raul and uh, and yeah, I, I will be interested myself as well. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest and biggest names in finance.